COVID-19, March 2020, EM cases, let's go. Since we had to maintain social distancing, I couldn't do the usual roundtable discussions at EMC Studios, so instead I recorded a few experts separately who have all been on the podcast before. One of the great leaders in emergency medicine in Canada, Howard Ovens, my mentor, on his general thoughts on getting through this crisis. ID doc and amazing educator Andrew Morris on the clinical aspects of COVID. Daniel Colick, one of Canada's leading experts on disaster medicine on surge capacity during this outbreak. Lori Masaryk on protected code blue, PPE, and protecting ourselves. And George Kovacs on airway considerations. We're working on an epidemiologist for prediction models and prevention of spread strategies as well. Let's jump right in with a short segment by Dr. Howard Ovens, then get into the clinical stuff. Well, thanks very much, Anton, for putting this together and for giving me an opportunity to participate. In 2003, I was a director of an emergency department in Toronto that was very heavily involved in the SARS outbreak of SARS-1. And uh, my department was in lockdown at various times, and we admitted over 20 confirmed cases of SARS, and there was no transmission of illness to any of our staff. But it was a very trying time. It's very fresh in my memory. It's even fresher right now because of how much the current time is evocative of that experience. And I think there's some things I learned about getting your department through that would be useful for your listeners. So the first thing is that communication amongst your group so that you're all on the same wavelength, share the same information, share the same anxieties and concerns is crucial. So you have to come to some decision about how you're going to do that. It could be by email. It could be by messaging such as WhatsApp or Slack or whatever. There's a number of different platforms, but you all have to agree to use it. And you really have to give primacy to checking those communications because the local information that determines how you're going to schedule and work in your department is really important. Then you need to decide personally what your sources of information and news will be. There are so many places where we can get information these days. It's like drinking from a fire hose and some of the water isn't exactly uh, pure. As well, you need some good professional sources of information. And if you're listening to this podcast, you've already made a good choice about one of your sources. You have to really think hard about personal risk and family risk. Risk can be calculated very objectively, but in the end, as people, as humans, we react emotionally. So when you read that a lot of healthcare workers got ill, in another jurisdiction, as they did in Wuhan. Don't forget, we're not sure exactly what the circumstances were. This happened in SARS, where there were stories of super spreader events, and we only found out later that, in many of these cases, violations of the guidelines that were current at the time had occurred. So if you run out of PPE and healthcare workers get sick, that doesn't mean we're not safe in our PPE. If you're exhausted, if you're not following the rules on who should be isolated and on avoiding aerosolizing procedures, you're a healthcare worker at risk and you might get sick, but people around the world should not make the wrong conclusion from that. In terms of your family, don't forget that this is a community-based virus as well as a hospital-based virus. 
So you're not the only source of potential infection to your family. And it depends a little bit on who your family are. If there are people in your family, especially in your household, who are very elderly or immune compromised, then you're probably going to act a little differently than if you've got a young, healthy family around you. You need to pace yourself so you don't get exhausted. So you need rest, you need exercise, you need healthy food, you need a little downtime. And if you participate in things like yoga or meditation, make sure you keep those up. And the strength is in the team. I found during SARS and even this week that my happiest time was when I was at work because I was surrounded by people I care about and trust. Doing something constructive for my patients and my community instead of just obsessively looking at my phone and listening to the news. And that actually was when I was most calm. So stick together and we'll get through this. Yeah, that was Dr. Evans choking up a bit near the end there as he reflected on his supportive VD team, a really important ingredient in tackling the COVID outbreak. Now on to the clinical stuff. Important to know that this was recorded on March 19th, 2020, so is only up to date until then. Check the EM Cases website for further updates. You may remember Dr. Andrew Morris from our episodes on UTI myths and on community-acquired pneumonia and probably a couple of other ones that I'm forgetting right now, uh, but he was kind enough in the middle of the insanity of the COVID outbreak and all the great work that he's doing at his hospitals to join us to tell us a little bit about screening, diagnosis, and management of COVID-19. So thank you very much, Dr. Morris. Oh, you're very welcome. Glad to be here. And just to remind our listeners a little bit about your professional background and what makes you uh, an expert at infectious diseases and tackling the COVID outbreak. Sure. So I'm an infectious diseases physician and a internist at Sinai Health and University Health Network in Toronto, and I'm a professor with the University of Toronto. Fantastic. All right. So let's just dive right in. Now, let's talk first about the diagnosis of COVID and the presentation. Now, there's obviously a lot of overlap between COVID-19 infection and influenza, the common cold, and bacterial pneumonia. Is there anything about the presentation that is somewhat specific to COVID-19? Like, like in other words, do we need to consider COVID in everyone who comes in with the sniffles or with a cough or a fever or shortness of breath or any of the above? Well, I think at this time in our history, I would say that anyone who comes in with a fever or any of the common respiratory complaints, whether that's cough or shortness of breath in particular, uh, you should absolutely be thinking of COVID infection. And I say that because this is so widespread that it's largely overtaken in terms of its epidemiology from many of the other common uh, respiratory infectious diseases that we see. That doesn't mean that we're not going to see influenza. And in fact, just this past week, I had a patient who came in who we strongly suspected had COVID-19 infection, but in fact, ended up having influenza B. 
Similarly, I've had another patient who we also suspected may have had COVID-19 infection, but it ended up being a bacterial pneumonia. So it can be very difficult. And even though there are some heuristics that we can now use to uh, help us at least increase our suspicion that it may be COVID-19 infection, I think because of the current epidemiology, we have to assume that it's COVID-19 infection until proven otherwise. Absolutely. What about the sort of natural history of COVID-19 infection? So can you just run through for us the incubation period? And in particular, how quickly do they typically get sick enough to require admission or ICU, et cetera? So obviously the information is changing drastically as we accumulate more information and it gets spread via usual channels, meaning medical publications, but also less formal channels, including social media, which has been really important for this uh, disease. It appears that most people present sometime in the first week with the median incubation period is somewhere around four to five days following exposure. So uh, once someone's been exposed, we anticipate that it'll take them about four to five days to get symptoms. But we also know that that could be as long as two weeks and sometimes even longer than that, although you'll capture almost every patient if you wait two weeks after they have exposure. And usually their presentations will have either fever, cough, or both. And those are by far and away the most common symptoms. It's usually a dry or non-productive cough. And many of the other respiratory symptoms that we might associate with a bacterial pneumonia like sputum production is rather uncommon. But I should point out that some of the things that people think about and associate with other viral infections, uh, such as the common cold, uh, we do see with coronavirus infection. And so upwards of 20% of patients may have nasal congestion or headache or sore throat. I've also read a little bit about a GI presentation. Have you ran into GI presentations or know anything about the literature when it comes to GI presentations of COVID-19? Yeah, so we know that the minority of patients will have either nausea or vomiting or diarrhea, and it'll be less than 10%. So the reports are anywhere from uh, 3 to 10%. This is not unusual. In fact, for almost all common lower respiratory tract infections like bacterial pneumonia or influenza, or even if you remember back to the days of SARS, there absolutely were patients who had gastrointestinal illness as part of their presentation. And whether or not that is just incidental or whether that's part of the disease process, it's very difficult to know because having GI complaints are common in the general population. But we tend to think that this is a definite manifestation of the disease, albeit uncommonly. And I have heard some reports that say that when they get really sick, they get really sick fast. Has that been your experience? That's important because we might be sending patients home who have mild symptoms to self-quarantine, but there's going to be a certain percentage of those patients who will get sicker. What's kind of the natural history when they do get sicker? So we know that the majority of patients are actually going to do quite well, which is not dissimilar to influenza or other common respiratory infections. 
What seems to be a bit unique, as you've alluded to, is one of the more common presentations that uh, we've heard time and again, where a patient gets admitted, seems to be sort of stable, but hasn't recovered, and then all of a sudden manifests in either a septic shock presentation, an ARDS presentation, or both. All right. So they can occasionally get sick very quickly. So that's something I think it's important to know for emergency physicians to tell patients that they are sending home. Now, in terms of transmission, you had mentioned that the incubation period is about four to five days, but can be upwards of 14 days or even longer. That always brings up the question, is asymptomatic transmission possible? And I've heard conflicting opinions about this. And of course, this is going to play into the prevention we tell uh, our patients and our friends and family. Can you get COVID from someone who's asymptomatic? So I think the information on this is dynamic. It's been changing quite a bit over time. Initially, what was thought was that asymptomatic transmission either didn't happen or was extremely unlikely. Part of that comes from our overall understanding of how this disease is transmitted in terms of being droplet spread. And most droplet spread comes from the oropharynx when people are speaking, coughing, sneezing. And because sneezing isn't a common manifestation of the disease, we assume that a lot of this is from people who are coughing. And because of that, the assumption was that if people aren't coughing, then the likelihood of transmission is rather low. I think over time, what we've come to appreciate from a variety of different sources, both published and unpublished, is that asymptomatic or what some of us are referring to as subclinical infection, is much more common. And that becomes very difficult to both study and understand because most people who have minimal symptoms don't usually seek healthcare attention and wouldn't normally get tested for any kind of viral infection. But especially from experience such as in uh, South Korea, And then more recently, just over the past week or so in Italy, where approaches have included testing all residents in a geographic region for COVID-19 infection, we've seen that there's a fairly substantial part of the population who aren't overtly symptomatic and yet are positive via nasopharyngeal swabs. That segues very nicely into who we should screen, who we should swab, and the these screening guidelines seem like they're changing daily. I know at the hospital that I work at, about a week ago, we were screening anyone with any infectious symptoms plus a travel history, but then we started running out of swabs. Yesterday, we got rid of the travel part uh, because COVID became community spread, and then we were told to screen only those over 60 who had a fever. And I think there's a lot of jurisdictions out there who are running out of resources to do screening. I guess it's a two-part question. One is, shouldn't we be aiming to screen as many patients as possible, like you were alluding to the way they they did in, in the Far East? And if we are faced with resource problems, who should we be screening? There's a, a lot packed into those questions that you just asked. I think it's really important to go back to how we try and control disease outbreaks 
like COVID-19. Many people in infectious diseases, public health, and epidemiology believe that early on in an outbreak or cluster situation, the ideal situation is that you try and contain the disease and hope that it doesn't spread outwards. In that situation, you have very few cases. You tend to know the source case and you know how the disease is being acquired from person to person. And so what you try and do is seek out all the sources of infection and spread of infection. You diagnose them by screening or case finding, and then you isolate them. If you can, you treat them. In this situation, we don't really have treatment, but you isolate them and you minimize the spread to other people. If you can reduce the number of people where there's spread, then you may totally contain the disease. I think we've come to appreciate that there's probably no place on the planet right now that has been able to contain the disease. But what you can perhaps do is slow down the spread of disease. Because if you can find somebody earlier on in their disease course, where perhaps they may have only been infecting two or three other people, as opposed to later on where they may be infecting five or 10 people. And when you multiply that over many, many people, you can imagine that the spread will be slower. And that's an important part of the overall strategy here is that in most settings, we're accepting that you can only reduce the total number of people in a population being infected by a small amount. But what you're trying to do is at least slow it down so that that period of time where uh, people are infected is spread out. That's why you're hearing so often people are referring to as flattening the epidemic curve or flattening the curve. And so if you have 100 people be infected and get really sick in one day, that will overwhelm one, two, or three hospitals. But if you had 100 people get severely ill over 30 days, then you may be able to handle it a little bit better. So the whole idea of containment, therefore, and uh, trying to, I'm going to say, case find and then uh, diagnose and isolate is really early on. As we get later on into the disease course, the benefit of that strategy is really balanced by healthcare resources that we have available, and that includes the availability of testing kits, uh, the availability of people to actually perform the tests, contact tracing abilities, which is often administered via through uh, public health channels, and then the lab capacity. And what we've seen globally is most jurisdictions don't have the infrastructure. They haven't built the capability to upscale their infrastructure to do all of those steps that are necessary. I think one of the marvels that we saw in China and in South Korea in particular were their ability to upscale their testing, their case finding, and then their follow-up. And they used uh, rather novel methods as well as a huge recruitment of human resources to be able to do that. On top of that, what we saw in China is they basically found everyone who tested positive in the community, symptoms or not, and then 
totally isolated them so that they wouldn't spread further. Where we are at this stage in most jurisdictions in North America and Europe in particular is we don't really have those capacities to do that. And we're having roadblocks in various stages. The most disappointing in performance has been the ability to just actually have the testing kits in the United States. Whereas in Canada, I think what we're seeing is, uh, at least in some some locations in Canada, a limitation in terms of uh, having the testing kits and also the labs being able to uh, process all those tests. And it's highly regionalized, so it varies according to which lab and or which public health authority is being able to perform these. That brings up the question of how accurate the COVID-19 screening tests are. I've heard that the specificity is quite high, but the sensitivity is not great. Do you have any numbers for us in terms of how accurate the swabs are? Yeah. So, you know, this is a question that is being asked increasingly, and it's actually very difficult to answer that question because the swab or the diagnostic test, which is a PCR test, it's actually your gold standard. We don't have a comparable standard. And unfortunately, we don't have yet the time and the epidemiologic data to be able to tell us how sensitive or the negative predictive value of the test to be able to understand what a negative test really means. I think some of the numbers that uh, people are talking about at the moment range between 70 to 80 percent, but those are really guesstimates. And uh, at this point in time, we really don't know. I think we're fairly comfortable that it's below 90%. So it's absolutely highly likely that we're missing a substantial number of people with negative tests. Wow, that's, that's a bit scary. I know it sounds scary, but I think what's also important is that because there's other epidemiologic information available. And because we're no longer trying to absolutely identify every single patient, but we're trying to slow the spread of the disease, it is acceptable, at least from my perspective, that we may occasionally miss one or two patients. Over time, that number is going to become far more likely as the disease becomes more embedded in a population and we see more community spread. It's going to be far more likely that we'll have more and more uh, patients out there who will test negative, but just by you know their history, physical exam, and uh, laboratory investigations, we should feel fairly confident that they probably are going to have COVID-19 infection. So if somebody comes in, there's you know three other people who they know who have cough and fever, they've got cough and fever, and their tests for either other viruses or just what we know from what's circulating in the community, even with a negative swab, it's going to be fairly likely with fever and cough that they're going to have COVID-19 infection. Yeah, great point. That actually brings us nicely to the workup. So let's talk about blood work first. What kind of lab work abnormalities do we typically find in the COVID patients? So uh, something that's been almost pathognomonic in these patients has been the rather impressive lymphopenia. You don't see it in every single patient, but it's extremely common. And so in someone who comes in with 
fever, cough, and lymphopenia, there's a fairly high likelihood that they're going to end up having COVID-19 infection. On top of that, some of the other things that we've uh, seen in this condition, which can be found in some other conditions, include an elevated lactate dehydrogenase, a positive D-dimer. But to be honest with you, I'm not sure that any of those individually make too much of a difference in terms of identifying uh, the cause of disease here. I think probably the radiographic findings are important. They're helpful when they're positive, but we also know, and we saw this back in SARS and we've seen this with influenza as well, that early on patients might not have chest x-ray findings. Uh, CT scans are actually much more sensitive in terms of their ability to find an abnormality. And most of these patients end up having uh, an interstitial pattern. So if you see a consolidative pattern, it's unlikely to be coronavirus. But if you see an interstitial pattern, especially at this time, uh, it makes it increasingly likely. And in fact, some of the strategies that were done in the Far East have included performing CT scans for many of these patients as a diagnostic test. So if somebody comes in, has fever, cough, and has an interstitial infiltrate, because of the epidemic nature of the disease at present, that's almost certainly going to be COVID-19 infection. All right. Well, that brings up the question of who should get a CT scan, because that's another limited resource, obviously. I guess in the patient that has an obvious chest x-ray with a bilateral patchy ground glass and no localized infiltrate in the right patient, that would be very convincing that it's COVID. Which patients do you think should get CT, understanding the test characteristics of chest X-ray and CT, as you just said, is probably the best imaging test? To be honest, I think very few patients require a CT scan. I think for many of these patients, we should be able to make the diagnosis with history, physical examination, and a a chest x-ray along with a nasopharyngeal swab. I think what's becoming a challenge and where it might be used is as some jurisdictions are having increasingly challenging access or ability to process in a timely manner the nasopharyngeal swab. And so if you can't process a nasopharyngeal swab the same day, you're being challenged for bed resources and you want to make a decision with some comfort whether or not the patient has COVID-19 infection. There may be a role for using CT scans, but you know it's obviously not the ideal situation. And we're talking about what we've seen, for example, in Italy, where the physicians are being pressed to make increasingly difficult decisions because they're just overwhelmed with the volume of patients. And so any decision aids for making dis- uh, for making therapeutic or diagnostic decisions can be aided. And I think that's where a CT scan could be potentially uh, helpful. Apart from that, though, I, I, th- I think it, it probably doesn't play much of a role for most patients. Okay. Suffice to say that while CT will show abnormalities in almost all of these patients and chest X-ray might be negative early on, that we should really be reserving CT for those patients where we can't get a swab, where they're sick enough that it's going to actually change our management. 
and that we have relatively easy access to CT. Yeah, I think so. And I think the other thing to consider is the possibility of a secondary infection, lung infection, like a pneumonia. Fortunately, both the published experience uh, out of China and Italy, and also the unpublished information that we've received primarily through social media, is that secondary bacterial infection appears to be rather uncommon in uh, COVID-19. It is a little bit difficult to understand and be confident in that because the management for almost all these patients has been to give them antibiotics up front. And if you're going to do that strategy, then at least in the first you know week or so when they're getting antibiotics, it will be unlikely that they're going to get a secondary bacterial infection. But if you're taking a strategy where you're not going to give antibiotics up front to all of these patients, then there may be a role in further imaging, especially if their respiratory status changes, which I already mentioned is not an uncommon scenario that patients get admitted and then they sort of crump after a few days and and get quite unwell. Wow. Great nuance there. Before we leave imaging, any role for ultrasound? I mean, as you're probably well aware, emergency physicians, or many of them, most of them, are pretty keen on point-of-care ultrasound. And I have read that ultrasound findings correlate very well with CT findings for this disease. What do you think about point-of-care ultrasound? I know you're not an emergency physician, but uh, from your perspective, is there much of a role for ultrasound in this diagnosis? There's probably as much role for ultrasound as there is for CT, whereby I think for most of the patients, it's probably not going to change your management. And uh, I have to admit, I haven't seen as much large volume data in terms of the ultrasound findings. I think it's, it's always the challenge for almost all these disease patterns on radiography because they're subjective findings rather than objective findings. It's difficult to know how much the diagnoses that are made on ultrasound or CT are influenced by uh, people having an understanding of what's going on. So if you know that someone's been admitted for COVID or you're in the midst of a massive outbreak, you're going to be far more likely to call something an interstitial abnormality or a grand glass opacity. And it's the grand glass opacities that seem to be the most common findings here. But as you know, it can be very subtle and you may be biased just by knowing the history. So I would imagine that that becomes even more problematic with the ultrasound, which I'm going to say is even more subjective or at least equally subjective as, as the CT scan. So I'm not sure how it's going to change management that much, but you know, if you're going to make a choice and you're pressed for time between a CT a scan of the chest and an ultrasound, it'd probably be reasonable to at least start getting experience with that. Fair enough. You had mentioned that it's so far been unusual to have a secondary bacterial infection, although a lot of these patients are going to be put on antibiotics and you know worked up for sepsis regardless. What about influenza, though? Should we be testing for influenza as well as COVID? And if we should be testing for both of these in patients who have a flu-like illness, 
does testing positive for influenza kind of rule out a co-infection with COVID? I don't think so. I think that, first of all, influenza and its incidence is declining substantially in most jurisdictions. I have to believe that as more and more countries are moving to social distancing, isolation, quarantine, etc., that we'll thankfully see an ongoing decline in influenza just because of the uh, social behaviors that are going on globally. For most patients, knowing additionally whether or not somebody has influenza in addition to coronavirus is probably marginal at best. It's probably worth a whole other episode to discuss the uh, role of treatment in influenza. But if treatment is beneficial in influenza, it's only a minimal benefit for most patients. Probably patients who make it to the intensive care unit, which is thankfully the minority of patients with coronavirus, there may be a role in those patients for knowing if there's co-infection with influenza because there may be a role or at least it may be more justified to give uh, neuraminidase inhibitors like oseltamivir in that setting. But for most of these other patients, we're going to be managing them supportively. We're going to be isolating them, so preventing further transmission to other patients and other healthcare providers and members of the public. So knowing whether or not they have influenza isn't really going to change our management nor their outcomes. So suffice to say that in the emergency department, at least, there's probably very little role to be testing for influenza. That decision should probably be made um, on an inpatient basis. Yeah, I think so. And what probably makes more sense is not to have the individual eMERGE doc making that call on whether you should have ongoing testing of influenza, but that should be more centralized by your either infection prevention and control specialists in your hospital or public health authorities in your region. All right, so you had mentioned that the management for COVID is generally supportive. Are there any kind of nuances about the supportive care that we should know about from the emergency department perspective? I think most patients who are seen in the emergency department will either be discharged home and instructed to self-isolate, or they're going to be admitted to the internal medicine service. In those situations, uh, should they be admitted, their care is probably going to be supportive care, often with supplemental oxygen and little else that may be needed. Whether or not there is a benefit of giving empiric antibiotics at that time is unknown, but we do know that most such patients around the world have been getting antibiotics up front. My own personal bias is that that's probably not necessary. The very small minority of patients who come in through the emergency department are going to be acutely unwell and will have a septic shock presentation or an ARDS presentation, and they're going to end up in your intensive care unit and will require immediate uh, resuscitation and support in the emergency department prior to getting them to the ICU. What we've learned from our colleagues around the world is that most of the things that we've tried to provide them, be that a specific antiviral therapies, all of which are experimental, or other approaches such as corticosteroids, 
haven't seemed to markedly influence the outcome, although they largely haven't been tested formally in clinical trials. In terms of practically speaking, have you been, quote unquote, throwing antivirals and steroids at some of these patients? Do you have an opinion of which patients might have an indication for antivirals and or steroids? Well, as you know, I always have opinions, <laughs> often strong ones. So there are agents that have a theoretical basis that may be beneficial. The leading candidates that are potentially or are currently available are chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, ritonavir as a combination, which is a drug used in HIV and comes in the formulation of Kaletra. Remdesivir, which is a not marketed antiretroviral drug for HIV that uh, can be accessed uh, through its manufacturer, Gilead. And uh, tocilizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody that targets IL-6 and blocks the inflammatory response that's used both by rheumatologists and oncologists because of its anti-inflammatory rules by blocking IL-6. Each of those agents have shown in vitro promise in terms of being able to have effect on the uh, SARS coronavirus 2 virus, which is what I've been calling throughout the podcast as uh, COVID-19. And whether or not those are going to end up proving beneficial is unclear. The trial that came out just yesterday in the New England Journal of Medicine, which included uh, 200 patients with uh, two arms, which was standard of care versus uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, was seen by many people as a disappointing trial because its primary endpoint was time to clinical improvement, and there was no clear difference between the two arms. The trial was stopped before getting enough data points to be able to tell us whether or not there was a mortality benefit. The investigators, guided by FDA standards in the past for looking at outcomes in influenza, decided to have the primary endpoint as time to clinical improvement as opposed to mortality, chose mortality as a secondary endpoint. And it left us with a rather wide confidence interval with a trend towards mortality improvement. But because the confidence interval is so wide, I don't think we can exclude either benefit nor harm from routine lopinavir, ritonavir in what they called severe patients, of which a large percentage of them ended up receiving intensive care. So I think the jury is still out with lopinavir, ritonavir, although many people are certainly disappointed at its overall profile from that study. And if it is going to make a difference, it certainly isn't a absolute game changer and it won't be a miracle drug uh, for COVID-19. The drug that um, President Trump was touting today was chloroquine, which we don't have so widely available as compared to hydroxychloroquine, which in Canada and the U.S. is a bit more widely available. And at this point in time, uh, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, which are usually used as anti-malarial, so a parasitic infection, does have some promise from in vitro data. 
but we really have rather limited information on its overall benefit. Just today was released a study by Didier Raoult in France as, uh, and his colleagues, which suggested that hydroxychloroquine uh, coupled with azithromycin has rather impressive antiviral effects, but we really have no understanding on its overall patient outcomes. And that was an incredibly small trial that included 20 patients in the treatment arm, uh, 16 patients in the standard of care arm, and there were six patients additionally who were in the treatment arm that were censored out because they had somewhat poor outcomes. So I think it'd be extremely premature to say that hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine is going to be a drug that's absolutely going to prove beneficial for COVID-19 treatment. The other two drugs, remdesivir and tocilizumab, we're even further behind in understanding the benefits of those two agents. But all of these are being currently tested in clinical trials around the world. So hopefully we'll get at least preliminary answers for all of those agents uh, within the next uh, four to eight weeks. I've read that there may be an increased risk of getting sicker with COVID in patients taking ACE inhibitors and ARBs. Is that something that we should be paying attention to? I think it's something that we should be paying attention to in the literature. I think that this is largely on a theoretical basis because of one of the binding receptors for the coronavirus, which is an ACE receptor. And I think the clinical significance is uncertain. And I think it would be fair to say it's probably unlikely to prove important but uh, it'll need to be studied. And I certainly wouldn't stop therapy. Many uh, cardiovascular societies have advised to make no treatment changes with ACE inhibitors or ARBs based on whether or not somebody's infected with COVID-19. All right. And what about ibuprofen? I've read conflicting opinions on whether or not ibuprofen should be used for fever in, in these patients. Yeah, I think ibuprofen and other NSAIDs, it's, it's quite amazing how the story took off a French physician uh, sort of noted uh, four young patients who did poorly who were on ibuprofen, and somehow this made it into uh, some recommendations. Uh, some politicians uh, commented publicly on this. And to add insult to injury, the World Health Organization, when uh, they made their recommendations, Their wording was so awkward that even though they were trying to say that you shouldn't alter your use of anti-inflammatories based on the current evidence, um, many people interpreted their statement to mean that uh, you should stop using anti-inflammatories. And uh, that was certainly an unfortunate uh, series of events. I don't think we have any reason to believe that NSAIDs play a role in this disease at all. And uh, again, I I wouldn't alter my use of NSAIDs, although I think most of us, with what we know about the potential uh, complications of NSAID use, minimize them already. Right. One last question just about the natural history. Can you get reinfected with COVID once you've had it? We don't really know that. I think it's a little bit too early to tell. It would seem from what we know about the virology of COVID-19 that being reinfected would seem to be unlikely. 
The things that we know are that at the moment, there seems to be really little diversity in the virus globally. On top of that, we know that most patients have a rather robust immune response to it. So those two things would suggest that people will have immunity uh, once being infected. What only time will show is whether this virus will mutate like an influenza virus does. If that's the case, then any further immunity would at best be partial. On top of that, we don't fully know because it just hasn't been, it's too early to have studied it, but we don't know how robust, durable, and specific the immune response is in people who have already been infected. And hopefully we'll get that information, but that'll probably be a few months from now. All right. So coming into the home stretch here, just a couple of questions about uh, what we're in for for the next few months or years. First, how long do you think the outbreak is going to last? And when do you think there is likely to be a vaccine for COVID? I'm going to answer the second question first around the vaccine. And I'm going to say that the earliest that we'll have a useful vaccine is probably 15 to 18 months from now, in terms of having a vaccine that's been developed, is active, uh, has been tested for safety, approved for use, and then can be distributed and administered. So all those things take quite a bit of time in the ideal world. I think um, vaccinologists, virologists, and manufacturers absolutely have demonstrated an ability to up their game when necessary and our ability to tackle uh, new and emerging diseases has improved over time. But there still is that challenge and there's no guarantee that we'll be able to develop an effective vaccine, even if it's in uh, the ideal other circumstances. The first question you're asking is how long is this going to last? And part of that depends on the ability to have a vaccine. But I also think it will really depend on how effective countries are in controlling the disease, seeing if the disease mutates, and also what will be the global strategy of how to reopen borders, hot zones, and movement of people. What I imagine will happen is that when a geographically defined area where there's an outbreak, be it in Wuhan, China, or be it Lombardy in Italy, when those areas become free of active disease, they will have their borders opened up when it's known that both the disease is controlled locally and the disease is controlled in other parts of the country. And then what I think you'd start seeing is that other countries will only open their borders to any other country if they can prove that they are disease-free. I think that that's going to be an emerging area of discussion, debate, and diplomacy in terms of how do you identify and prove whether a country is going to be COVID-free. And only time will, will tell. If there's a a vaccine available, how that gets managed will be very different. So I can imagine, much like we see with yellow fever, for example, 
that uh, people can only enter zones if they've been vaccinated against yellow fever, we may be seeing the same situation uh, with COVID-19 if there's an available vaccine. If there isn't an available vaccine, then we're going to have to start thinking about what would allow movement of people um, across borders. And uh, I don't see any of this happening, with it, to be honest with you, uh, within the next nine months. It may be longer. And what we ha- we aren't certain of and what we saw back with SARS is that, you know, there were second peaks. And we're starting to see this already with Singapore, where we thought things were under control. And then all of a sudden, they've uh, just started to have an increase in cases again. And so countries are going to have to decide how long they're willing to wait before deciding that they have actually eradicated the disease. Dr. Morris, any last words of wisdom or messages you want to send out to all the uh, approximately 40,000 EM cases listeners? Well, I, I think we should be cautiously optimistic. I think that the degree of collaboration, innovation, and the spread of knowledge and investigation with this disease has outstripped anything, to be honest with you, anything that anyone really imagined prior to this. Um, Those of us have been warning about new or emerging uh, drug-resistant infections uh, said that they would have catastrophic consequences. And to be honest with you, this is worse than I personally ever imagined such an outbreak uh, would be. But on the other hand, in the world's history, we've never had a disease that has infected more than about 30 to 35% of the population. So there's no reason to believe, especially with all the tools, knowledge, communication abilities that we have, that we shouldn't be able to overcome this with time. But I think we have to accept that this is going to be a new normal for quite a long time. And for people who are treating this as a sprint, you're going to be pooped out early. And this is going to be a marathon. And I think all of us have to be prepared to handle this marathon. In the next COVID podcast that comes out in a few days, we're going to cover surge capacity, PPEs and protected code blues, airway considerations, and hopefully some more epidemiology with the latest prediction models. By March 25th, we'll have a COVID section on the EM Cases website, which will contain all the resources you need, with weekly COVID updates from our various experts via the EM Cases newsletter. If you haven't signed up for that already, it's on the right side of the homepage near the top. Just click on that and you can sign up for our newsletter. And I'd like to bring back the quote of the month, which we haven't done in a few years. This one is from an unknown author. And the people stayed home and read books and listened and rested and exercised and made art and played games and learned new ways of being and were still and listened more deeply. Some meditated, some prayed, some danced, some met their shadows. And the people began to think differently. And the people healed. And in the absence of people living in ignorant, dangerous, mindless, and heartless ways, the earth began to heal. And when the danger passed and the people joined together again, they grieved their losses and made new choices and dreamed new images and created new ways to live and heal the earth fully as they had been healed. (laughs) 